When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. Our show is about to begin. Welcome back to The Soundtrack Show. I'm your host, David W. Collins, and today we're looking at the second half of Jurassic Park from 1993. Directed by Steven Spielberg with a score by John Williams, you know. Uh, We've been looking at it for the last few weeks, and now we're wrapping it up with the second half of the movie. This is a commentary track, so we're going to sync up at the one hour and 25 second mark all the way to the end. So while you're doing that, we're going to take a quick break uh, so we can keep sync with the movie once we're back. Be right back. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Okay, sit back, relax, and enjoy the second half of Jurassic Park in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Ah, we've got the lovely goat in the Tyrannosaur paddock. So, this was shot on a set. Uh, This whole thing was shot on a set here at Warner Brothers, as I mentioned, so that they can control the elements. Rain machines going, etc. This is the biggest stage at Warner Brothers, which is why they used it. Also, I believe because uh, there were water elements involved. But you'll notice right away, and I've said this before in the show, there's no music in this entire sequence here. Uh, we just had music, but now we're entering this stretch of almost 10 minutes with no music here, as our characters are stuck out here in in the storm. This is a great opportunity for the sound editors and for Gary Rydstrom and his crew at Skywalker Sound to just build a sense of atmosphere. And in a, in a way, you build a sense of, te- of tension by doing that. Uh, sorry, I don't know if it's allergy seasons or in L.A. or what, but anyway. <laughs> you build a sense of tension by by uh, just having nothing but the sound of rain. And of course, this great shot of Tim here with the uh, night vision goggles uh, is going to give away. We're already wondering what it is that he's going to look at. And and this kind of view um, inside the infrared goggles is frightening. You know, it's a little bit of foreshadowing. I love this nice little moment here between uh, two men that were pursuing the same same uh, relationship there. Whoops. Awkward. Now, this is brilliant right here. This low thud that the sound editors put in. And, of course, Steven Spielberg um, having the idea for these um, ripples of water to appear in the glass of water in order to show off the impact tremor. 
interesting musical story about this. So the way that Steven Spielberg came up with this is that he was driving around L.A. and he was listening to Earth, Wind & Fire. And every time the bass went off in the track, he was listening to it very loudly in his car. He was looking, as Gennaro does here in the rearview mirror, at his rearview mirror and boom, it shook just like that. Every time the bass went off and he was in the middle of developing Jurassic Park, they were in pre-production and he called the production designer and it was like, I know what we got to do. We got to have the T-Rex footsteps with the impact and uh, it's got to shake the rearview mirror. Well, apparently this was not an easy trick to pull off, especially when it came to, well, actually the rearview mirror was easy, but when it came to creating the perfect circular ripples in the glass of water, they tried a million different ways in order to get that look. Um, again, that could have been a big, big scare stab there with music when the, when the, uh, sheep leg ends up on the, uh, on the car there, on the car roof, but they don't do anything. I always thought this shot was very similar to the Rancor in Return of the Jedi in terms of the last little bit and then the head turn there, almost an homage. Um, of course that all, it all goes back to King Kong, as I mentioned before. But anyway, they ended up having to run a guitar string underneath the dashboard of the car and pluck the string in order to get those perfect ripples. That's what created the perfect ripples, uh, on those, um, glasses of water there. Where does he think he's going? When you gotta go, you gotta go. This is sound design really doing its best here to tell a story, doing an incredible job, building tension. And the decision for there to be no music, I think, is is not only very effective, but bold. And keep in mind, you know, when you first see animation of a T-Rex roaring like this, you're like, wow, I have to come up with a sound for that. So there's a, I believe it's a baby elephant. There's some uh, seal in there and there's some uh, lion snarl as well, if I remember what Gary Rydstrom said it was. But uh, you put it against those convincing visuals and your, your brain just accepts it as real. This is a very long sequence, and I always think that it it uh, shows tremendous confidence by filmmakers whenever they decide to do something like this that is just just sound effects and just the actors' performances. You know, music can oftentimes be a crutch, and uh, it's just not needed. The scene is so dynamic and so scary without a lot of horror movies use sound in order to really build tension. And sometimes music just overdoes it. It takes you out of the reality of the moment. It, it kind of comments on the action. And here you want to be in that car with these characters. That moment is straight out of the book as well, where apparently the, the T-Rex roar is so loud that it, it, it almost deafens the kids. These child actors here, um, <laughs> very brave and had to go through a lot. I mean, this a lot of this scene is done with animatronics, so not all of this is CGI. A lot of this is Stan Winston's work. The the T Rex head here, that's all real. I mean, you know, practical on the set. Um, those teeth, that's all real. 
Gary Rydstrom used to have a demo tape of this scene where he would show you the scene in layers. Uh, very similar to an episode that I did. And in fact, it actually inspired the episode I did about Helm's Deep uh, uh, with the two towers. Uh, paint, I think I called it Painting with Sound. But he broke down the layers of the scene so you could hear it. You could hear the weather effects. You could hear the animal effects. You could hear the, the car effects. You could hear the Foley track as well as the isolated dialogue um, because a lot of it is replaced in the studio. Uh, I'm sure very little survived from the set. But it was a, a wonderful breakdown for me as a young person getting into sound to really, really understand um, how all of these things are put together to create a final illusion. And notice as well that, uh, you know, every time the dinosaur roars, there's a little bit of, a, of, a, of an echo effect, this sort of outdoor reverb. You know, you're constantly creating spaces, whether they're indoor or outdoor, with, uh, with uh, reverberation, artificial reverberation, to kind of sell that this thing is outdoors. And the sound of that, one of the ways you convey size, besides just volume, one of the ways that you can convey size is with uh, delay or echo or reverb, as if the sound of it is so huge that it's delaying through the canyons of the island. Tremendous amount of sound work going on here. This is a great moment, too. I mean, you could imagine a, a composer going nuts with all of this action. You know, uh, and the decision was made not to do that. We take it for granted, but again, you know, these are, these are creative discussions that they have to have. Which, you know, is made even more impressive, and this is something that I wanted to talk about uh, last time, but didn't really get into it very much. But this whole movie is made even more impressive when you consider what Steven Spielberg was going through while this movie was in post-production. You know, he shot this movie, and then he locked the edit, and then he immediately went off to Poland to film Schindler's List while this movie was in post-production, while ILM was finishing effects, while Skywalker Sound was editing, while uh, John Williams was writing the music. Uh, he was shooting an entirely different movie and uh, was not just in pre-production on it, but was actually filming, going to and from set. Um, he had cassettes of the score, as I mentioned before, because he wasn't at the scoring date with John Williams, so he was hearing... I guess John Williams had played score or pieces for him on the piano before he left, but when it came to the actual orchestral score, had him uh, had tapes sent to him, cassette tapes, and he was listening to those tapes on the way back and forth to the set of Schindler's List in order to kind of take his mind off the heaviness of what he was filming with Schindler's List. Um, but he called it a very bifurcated focus, you know, a very split focus while he was making Schindler's List. Um, but maybe that worked to his advantage because of the heaviness. Maybe he needed a, a creative escape uh, to refocus his mind and relax um, because by all accounts, Schindler's List was, a, was an extremely dark, heavy, emotional experience for them to film, obviously. Um, in fact, I read in the liner notes, again, from the La La Land Records release, I read from the liner notes that um, Robin Williams was also employed... Just really fast, the music cuts in right here. Suddenly, music is back. Now, this is a big thing in the book where where Arnold here, Samuel Jackson's character, is showing the white rabbit code that that Nedry installed, and the the white rabbit code. 
the white rabbit code uh, was hidden because keystrokes are usually logged into the system and he bypassed that. And so basically rather, rather than go through all 2 million lines of code uh, in order to dig out the problem, they have to reset the park. Uh, this turns into a huge section in the middle of the book, you know, where they're like, you know, all, all of this automation is so complicated that all it takes is one human flaw to basically leave them completely stuck with the natural world doing what it's going to do, which is start attacking and eating uh, the park guests. So they have to go in and shut off the power. And now we're in this race to the dock queue, which is very exciting after no music. Um, I'll get back to the Robin Williams story, which is essentially, it's a short story, but essentially he was uh, asked by Steven Spielberg to talk to him on the phone to and from set to Schindler's List just to make him laugh. Just so that he could lighten the mood while he was uh, while he was doing Schindler's List. Between that and working on Jurassic Park, uh, that's apparently how Steven Spielberg coped, coped with doing Schindler's List while this movie was in post-production in early 1993. I feel like every time I do a commentary, I have a stuffy nose. My apologies. And now the music is gone. This whole Dilophosaurus attack is uh, done without music. It's just the sound of the rain. And you very easily could have done music here, but you didn't. But yeah, the idea that all of this was being done without the director present, and then Gary Rydstrom flew to Paris, and Spielberg flew from Poland to Paris, and they met. That's a wonderful sound. That I always thought that was just like so cool. What a great idea. This kind of friendly bird sound is a wonderful contrast, too, in terms of size to what we just heard with the T-Rex. But this idea that they would meet in Paris, you know, and go over reels, and then they'd have to go back to California to mix, and then Spielberg would go back to Poland to keep shooting a whole other movie. That's crazy. It's, it's not an ideal way to make a, a huge movie like this, but you can't argue with the end results. Listen to these sound effects. Oh. Hi, nice boy. Hi, nice boy. Nice dinosaur. Nice and relaxed. Thought you were one of your big brothers. You're not so bad. Yeah, you're not, you're so, not bad. so bad. Well, we what know what's want? coming. What do you want? You want food? Look at me. I just felt You know, like you could have cut in a growl. You could have cut in a lot of different sounds, but these kind of like very gentle bird sounds against those visuals uh, make this next moment pay off when the thing actually kind of... Uh, shows off its fins and rattles a little bit and then spits spits poison uh, this acidic poison at uh, at Nedry here people think of sound editing like it's very technical and of course there's a technical side to any craft but it's extremely creative you know you want to you want to always be in support of the story and so when you're choosing how to design the sound of creatures that don't actually exist um What's the emotional impact of bird sounds versus this rattlesnake sound right here? Not you know, the, that cool yell. You have to sell that animatronic, you know, and that spit sound, and even the sizzle, you could hear it kind of frying on his face. Um, Obviously, that wouldn't be like that in real life, but you're trying to communicate with sound that this thing burns, but you know, and reinforce uh, reinforce what's going on with uh, with Wayne Knight's performance there with sound. 
No music. No music. And this great shot here. This shot was actually meant to set up a sequel. Uh, Spielberg said, you know, I, I did this whole elaborate mud on the Barbasol can pan down so that, you know, that, that could set up the sequel. Uh, but Michael Crichton went in a totally different direction when he decided to write the sequel, uh, The Lost World Jurassic Park, in terms of there being a Site B, Isla Sorna, and, uh, you know, decided that Malcolm didn't die after all, you know, that that was exaggerated. And um, in the book, you never actually see Malcolm die. He just slowly dies from his wounds. Uh, and uh, Muldoon survives, which he doesn't survive in the movie. Uh, he just tells Grant, yeah, no, he didn't make it. So that left some room for for Malcolm to actually survive and just say, no, 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 he was wrong. No, I totally survived. I was fine. Everything's fine. You know, I had to walk with a cane for a while, but I'm okay, you know. Um, but, but they changed it so that he survived. This is another really interesting sequence with the car and the tree here because uh, there's no music until the very, very, very end. And the music that we do give is it's constructed in a really brilliant way. Uh, one of the ways... Tim! By the way, it's a great opportunity for Gary Rydstrom then to put in yeah, like the distant up. sound of dinosaurs way reverberated out uh, to kind of fill these empty shots with sound and use every hole that you can in the soundtrack as a storytelling opportunity. That's something that sound designers do all the time. But anyway, um, it's constructed in a really great way, but uh, the, the music cue that's coming up. But this moment right here in the book um, of Tim throwing up is actually a plot point in the book. It makes for a really cute moment right here. You okay? <laughs> Poor kid. You okay. Let's throw up. Oh. But it's actually uh, part of how Muldoon ends up tracking what happened here because they don't know if they're still alive. They see the car in the tree and they just assume, you know, these kids have been eaten, everyone's dead. But when they actually go and investigate the car, they can smell the vomit of the kid and they can actually see that, sorry, this is gross, but say, see that it's somewhat warm and, and fresh, I think they say. And then that's what leads them to look down and see fresh foot, footprints. And then they start tracking the footprints. And then they're able to piece together that Grant has the two kids and that they're all alive and they survived the T-Rex attack. Um, so that's actually a really important part of the book. Uh, in this movie it's done visually very quickly and I'll point it out when it happens but um, they're going to climb down this tree again with no sound for the most part but you can imagine sorry not no sound no music but you can imagine music actually playing kind of intense creepy here and then starting to like you can imagine them doing it but again they decided not to even right here no music not until right here. And then the music kicks in. So it's 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 an interesting choice that they leave us without music in this movie for these long stretches to put us in the park with the characters. Uh, maybe they felt that that was more effective and even more scary. And they felt the movie looked more real than what they were uh, even hoping for when they were in pre-production, just to guess. But this is a really interesting track because if you listen to the horns and listen to the music, it's all these descending chromatic lines. Da, 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 da. Yet the music is also building. So it's building while descending. Um, and da, 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 da. You know, it kind of 
And that's a wonderful gag. I think that's kind of an old Buster Keaton gag there with uh, the house kind of him falling through the window as the house falls. But uh, they fall in, into the sunroof and they're back in the car again. <laughs> but at least we're out of the tree. Um, another homage to classic filmmaking. Now we have another music cue, and this is the introduction to DSRA, which is becoming a little bit of a... Uh, uh, a little bit of a recurring theme on the soundtrack show. We've talked about it a lot. And a lot of you wrote in uh, with specific regard to that DSRA episode that I did that I left out a lot of movies. And you're right, I did, because there are so many, because DSRA is just everywhere. Notice that it just stopped right as they find the body or pieces of the body. I think this was too. And then it really picks up again. Do you hear that little death knell bell there? Ding! <clears throat> That's the approach of death right there. Very clever. TSRA hitting us again and again. By the way, that digital dinosaur yell, the way you bake in perspective as a sound mixer is you use an EQ and you remove all the high end from something and you just soak it in reverb and delay and it lets you know, just like that, that the dinosaur is around, but it's not directly in front of you. It's still a ways off. Please, Jesus. Now, this is an interesting shot coming up here as they're still looking around for Grant and the kids. Laura Dern's going to look over that ledge, but remember, this is all on the Warner Brothers soundstage, so when she's looking over the ledge, she's actually just staring at the soundstage floor down here. Not to spoil the illusion too much, but that's acting. You know, it's all just put together with, with crafty editing because we saw that wall here, and of course, now we're on a different set. And this is what I was talking about earlier. You know, this whole thing in the book is just condensed to a few seconds when the flashlight here sees these footsteps. And that's how they decided to do that whole sequence in the book in terms of tracking whether or not the kids are alive. Now, this next shot right here, look at how brilliant Spielberg is. Pan down from Jeff Goldblum onto this footprint. Jeff Goldblum's out of focus. Tremor. Rack pull. He's in focus. Boom. Second tremor. Cut away. That takes a ton of rehearsal and choreography between the actor and the cameraman and the assistant cameraman and and the director in order to get that right. But that is what Spielberg is famous for, is that kind of camera movement and storytelling. He just does the most unique, interesting, complex camera moves that just have such a tremendous art to them. Uh, master visual storyteller and very unique style. Now, this whole cue that, that uh, we're listening to now um, is meant to be a big action sequence to feature the Predators motif right here as Muldoon looks into the rearview mirror. There it is. It's a great gag. I remember cars in the 90s had that objects in mirror may, may be closer than they appear thing. I don't think cars still have that, but for whatever reason, that was a thing in the 90s. Uh, he's going to roar again, and now we're going to get three times in a row right here. Williams passes it around in the brass section there. So there's that uh, that predator motif. It's interesting because it's very prominently featured there. It's featured at the top of the movie, yet we don't really remember that four-note motif the way we remember the fully developed emotional themes of the island and the animals. I think that's for a couple of reasons. One, you know, when we first meet the T-Rex in the T-Rex pavilion... We're not given bomb, 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 like this sort of King Kong monster movie as it comes through the fence. We're given nothing. We're meant to experience it in a way that's totally real. You know, the full illusion of film, it's supposed to be almost documentary-ish, you know, when it's coming through. 
I mean, obviously it's heavily, heavily stylized, but I mean, in terms of the lack of music, it feels very real. We're there with the characters, but I, you know, we don't always associate that that four-note motif with the Predators as strongly as we do some of the other themes in this movie. I think another reason is because we didn't see it with the Raptors yet. You know, we didn't see it with the Raptors at the top, really. Um, and we certainly didn't see it when the Raptors were feeding in, in their pen when they fed, you know, ate that cow. By the way, it's a great story there. Steven Spielberg apparently was had a megaphone and was making all these horrible dinosaur noises while the actors were looking on in horror at the Raptors feeding um, but uh, if you watch the movie closely, you can kind of see that they're trying not to laugh. Um, but uh, interestingly enough, in The Empire Strikes Back, John Williams uh, did something similar as he did in the beginning of Jurassic Park. If you remember, we hear the Predators theme at the top of Jurassic Park with that native flute there. I'm um, going, do, 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 do. Um, he did something similar in Empire, and I'll, I'll cover Empire much later on the soundtrack show, but if you look at the top of Empire, after the title crawl, as it pans down to that Star Destroyer, all these brass are going nuts, but over the top of it, this piccolo is going... It's very subtle, but it's a technique that John Williams has used a couple times in order to stamp a motif or a melodic idea onto the top of a movie. Um, but of course, in, in Jurassic Park, that didn't really play out. Uh in terms of the Predator theme being the main, uh, you know, monstrous theme that we remembered, it was really downplayed by Spielberg. And instead, what was played up are scenes like the one that we're looking at now. You know, this wonderful celeste, uh, these kids cozying up to Dr. Alan Grant in this tree as they take a, a downbeat moment from where we were. And of course, we get the animals theme here, like a lullaby, as Tim tells these dinosaur jokes. I don't know, what do you call my dinosaur? Do you think he saw us? It's a very sweet moment. What do you call blind dinosaur's dog? You got me. Do you think he saw us? And you know, Lex says, "What? What are you and Ellie gonna do now?" And he says, "Maybe we're gonna evolve." As these kids cuddle up to him, you know, and he pulls out this raptor claw—the same claw that he threatened children, a child with at the top of the movie—and as he's holding on to these kids and being their protector, being their guardian. He takes this raptor claw and he throws it on the, looks at it and throws it on the ground as if, you know, this thing that I pursued my entire life that was more important to me than anything, including having a family or kids, uh, when faced with it in real life is not as important as the lives that I just protected, as the lives that I just saved. That is a wonderful pivot for this character. And of course, now we're looking at all this Jurassic Park memorabilia. This is real merchandise. Uh, that was made for the movie and they decided to shoot it and uh, have it be part of the storytelling of the park. Again, that parallel being very, very strong. But this music, this is a very specific gaze that Spielberg has about telling this story. And these are the moments that this film is remembered for and I feel like have not been duplicated um, in any of the other films quite this way um i think there's been a lot of heart in a lot of the other films uh even jurassic world i, I really enjoyed you know there was a lot of heart in there and a lot of touching moments in there um but films are just paced very differently this is a very like i said et hook spielberg here making this monstrous monstrous movie and what's interesting the the lullaby that we just heard as the kids are falling asleep in grant's arms has a parallel here with this remembering petticoat lane Q, as Hammond remembers his past, it's a little twisted. 
it's not quite uh, it's not quite as beautiful and straightforward as the hymn of the animals theme, um, but it's used the same in, using the same instrumentation here as Celeste, as he was remembering you know this this flea circus that he had. Um, but if you listen to the harmony, it's just a little the melody's just a little wacky. Flea's on parade, and that sort of like twisted memory. Or what led to the twisted desire to make this park this place has a tragic bent to it with these strings coming in. Something that was real. Something As the emotion wells up on Sir Richard Attenborough's face. Great performance. See and touch. And this line where he says something not devoid of merit. Not devoid of merit. Is he talking about the park or is he talking about himself? And that, I feel like that's what the music is 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 really playing up here. And of course, Laura Dern talks him off the ledge here because he's still delusional. Having to do was a mistake. That's obvious. We're overdependent on automation. I can see that. Uh, that automation line is again David Kep condensing <clears throat> pages and pages of dialogue into one line. You know these discussions that Laura Dern is having with Richard Attenborough here. These were pages and pages and, and were sort of the heart of the book. And he has to condense it down into two-minute scenes. I was overwhelmed by the power of this place. I've done some writing in my time, uh, mostly in the video game space. But narrative writing is narrative writing. And, and one of the things you learn as you're studying it is, is how hard it is to condense down ideas and be succinct with words. And that's what screenwriters have to do is choose their words carefully because there's not a lot of screen time to put to spend on these kind of down moments in plot, especially in a big summer action movie like Jurassic Park. But, you know, the idea of having to take an entire page of dialogue and then try and summarize the idea of that dialogue in a paragraph or even a sentence. It's a tremendous uh, writing exercise. It's good. And they're eating ice cream. Spared no expense. Uh, in the book, again, the ice cream is like some unbelievable gourmet ice cream that's made from ingredients from the island. And uh, it's very interesting what he spent his money on. He wouldn't spend his money on people, but he'd spend his money on things. Park is totally automated, yet, uh, you know, to save money, yet they have all this gourmet ice cream. You know, so the high-end consumer experience uh, was going to be wonderful, but actually having to employ a lot of people was something he was trying to avoid. Um, very interesting. This movie is paced so well because we just experienced arguably the the most intense moment of the movie, although I, I think it gets more intense towards the end, uh, but we're not as shocked by it as we were uh, in the beginning, but I mean, it definitely ratchets up in terms of the drama and the kids and in that kitchen later on. But this down moment, now we're having another moment uh, to kind of recover from the stress that we just had. Uh, but this is another moment with the Brachiosaurus, but this time up close, uh, like the one that we had. It's kind of a magical, humorous, fun moment. And as an audience, we need it. You know, you don't always get these kind of moments anymore in, in modern action movies. You know, the, you don't get this level of sweetness, of innocence. John Wayne is being very playful in this sneeze gag here. Interesting to see, too, that it went from a Stan Winston head to a CG sneezing uh, 
sneegy seizing sneegy sneezing dinosaur in that other shot um, using every trick in the book you know I mean really combining uh, the best of Stan Winston and all this new CG and trying to do it in a seamless way you know even uh, with you know between one shot and the next now listen to this music here we get a call back to that ethereal choir that we heard when the raptors were hatching in a lab you know what this is The dinosaurs are breeding. But you know, it's not as twisted. It's a little more straight ahead. There's a little, like, undercurrent of danger there. But the melody that the choir is singing is a little more straight ahead and a little bit more natural than what we heard in the lab. You know, they've taken on their own natural way of procreating. Life has found a way. And this is an, another really interesting section here where he's having to condense down this entire plot to just something that is palatable for us to follow very, very quickly. John Williams kind of celebrating the life here. Yeah, I found a way. It's a mixture of, of celebration and wonder, but no, also no, a little bit of fear. Jeff Goldblum with the heaving Wait, chest. What exactly would this mean? <laughs> We're talking about a calculated risk, my dear, which is about the only option left to us. We will never find the command that Ned reused. He's covered his tracks far too well. And I think it's obvious now that he's not coming back. So... So again in the novel, shutting down the park is a big, big deal. Um, because they can't find the code that that Nedry used to disable that white rabbit.exe code. They can't find that that within all of the lines of code because he bypassed the um the 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 log that that logs every keystroke that happens in the park. So they can't go back and retrace his steps. So the only thing they can do is reboot the system. In the novel, this turns into a really big deal because they actually do reboot the system successfully at first, but they don't realize that they're running on auxiliary power. And so they're going and going and going, and, and then auxiliary power runs out sometime in the early morning. Um, and that's how you know all, all heck breaks loose. Um, they really condense this and simplify it in the movie to something very, very easy to understand, which is that they have to shut down the park in order to get power back up again. Um, but in shutting down the park, they actually make things worse and they don't realize it until Muldoon sees, hey, when you shut down the park, you didn't just shut down the perimeter fence and the fences around, but you actually shut down the raptor pen. And by shutting down the raptor pen... Now we are really, really in trouble. Hold on to your butts. Um. No, no music really until right here. And it's kind of a, a reprise of Nedry. It's okay. Look, see that? It's on. It worked. Wait a minute, what do you mean it worked? Everything's still off. Well, maybe the shutdown took the circuit breakers. All we have to do is turn them back on, reboot a few systems in here, telephones, security doors, a half dozen others, but it worked. The system's ready. Where are the breakers? Maintenance here, the other end of the compound. Three minutes, I can have power back on the entire park. Well, now, just to be safe, I want everybody in the emergency bunker until Mr. Arnold returns and the whole system's up and running. Oh, boy. 
so yeah, Mr. Arnold disappears, and that is the last we see of Samuel Jackson. Well, sort of. This scene of the of the herding, stampeding Gallimimus, Gallimimuses, Gallimimai, don't know. Beautiful, uh, beautiful on location shot in Hawaii, and of course they're looking at nothing. These are all CG, um, and you can see as they're running away in this next shot that they're looking around. Uh, at all the Gallimimus that are going to be added later in post-production. And ILM did a great job of tracking their head movement and making dinosaurs pass right as they're looking to their left and right. Um, there are a couple of exceptions, though. For example, at one point, if you keep your eyes on Tim, young Tim here, he looks straight up. Um, and he's not looking at anything. But this is, this is early CG where they had to shoot these plates with nothing in them and then had to add CG later. You know, uh, this shot right here. Watch Tim as he looks straight up. Yeah. But, you know, it's pretty close. It's really a convincing illusion. And, of course, you know, the, the, the crew shaking this branch here. And then they add in CG. And, and the animation is just unbelievable, you know, in terms of getting these, these things to be credible and have weight and look real. Um but these Gallimimus and this T-Rex out here in broad daylight, I mean, fully exposed with the sunlight on them, these were the test shots that they first saw, not quite like this, but they saw a, a run cycle of a T-Rex or a walk cycle, and then they saw a run cycle of a Gallimimus. And that's when Phil Tippett was like, well, I think I'm out of a job or extinct. Uh, it's a wonderful story about, about uh, innovation and ILM really pushing for, for computer graphics um, there's a documentary floating around somewhere where, you know, in order to really get them to to look at the computer graphic version, because I mean, imagine the politics involved. I mean, you've you've got an entire crew already hired to do stop motion. You know, your friend has the gig, and yet you've got these artists that are like, you know, we could really do it with CG, and so they left the dinosaur running on a loop on a computer. Uh, you know, knowing that Kathy Kennedy and Spielberg were going to walk by at ILM. And I think Kathy Kennedy saw it and said, what's that? You know, and then it led to this whole conversation, at least according to this documentary that I found. Um, but it really was a revolution. And George Lucas had to promise Spielberg, you know, that we can make this work because it was very risky to do all the dinosaurs CG. Ah, there's the island theme again. Covered that on the show. You can tell we're moving into the third act here. Uh, the music is kind of setting the stage. We've been given a lot of plot. Dr. Arnold about having to turn the maintenance shed on. Of course, now he hasn't come back. So the tension's being ratcheted up. And uh, we're getting a little bit more music here than what we've had in the movie. But uh, it ought to be me really going. Why? Well, I'm a... And you're a... Come on, let's go. We can discuss sexism and survival situations. Laura Dern, David Cabin, Steven Spielberg being ahead of their time here. It's a great moment. We can discuss sexism in survival situations when I get back. <laughs> and we step outside and we're treated to the sounds of the jungle. And this is where Muldoon realizes their error by shutting down the fence. Look at this. Wonderful... Uh, and there's our predator motif. There's a wonderful statement of it. Oh no, and he realizes the raptors are loose. 
shut down was a turn of all offenses. So even Nedry knew, yeah, don't turn off the fences. So Nedry turned everything down, but he didn't like, he didn't disable the raptors, but by shutting off the power, whoops. In the book, it's important to notice too that to note too that Nedry was supposed to come back to his desk. He was supposed to drive out to the dock, drop off the barbersol can, and be back at his desk before anybody knew what happened. You know, he's like, I'm going to go get a snack. I'll be back. You know, he wasn't racing for the dock himself in the book. Um, you know, he was just going to be there and, and it was supposed to be the perfect crime. He's supposed to be gone for less than 15 minutes. Um, but it didn't go that way. So Nedry was going to have no trace of anything that happened. It was just going to be a quick buck. This is a great cue here. Again, this reminds me of, of uh, some of William's prequel writing for Attack the Clones. And it ends, kind of Mickey Mouse is on the door slam there. And we just get tension. I mean, that shot of her running is, the music just completely builds tension there. Without it, it would be kind of silly because we don't see any predators on screen. We just see Laura Dern running. So the music is kind of helping our imaginations fill uh, that scene with potentially a raptor just off screen about to grab her, you know? Um, so there the music works really, really well. And I imagine without it, I would be pretty tough. And now we have the reprise of that DSRA coming up here on the fence. Look at how beautiful Kauai is. Of course, it's after this gag here. Well, looks like the fences are off. Test it with a stick. Very scientific. I guess it means the power's off. <laughs> he scares these kids. It's great. We missed a line earlier, but the, the Lex and Tim... You know, Tim is all for adventure and, and he loves it. And, uh, you know, he teases his older sister, Lex, about staying in, in uh, her room with the computer all the time. She's like, I'm a hacker. You know, they, they gave Lex and Tim each kind of like a, a superpower, a broad superpower in this movie, you know, to kind of give them an, an angle. Um, and that pays off eventually when Lex is able to turn the system back on which is also a moment in the book, but it's Tim that does it. Uh, but instead they made Tim a dinosaur expert and Lex the computer expert, just to give both the kids, you know, uh, a, a storyline and an arc, you know, because Lex was just a young girl that was obsessed with baseball in the uh, in the novel. And here's that Diaseri cue that I mentioned was coming. Come on guys, it's not a race. I mean, what a perfect storm of just messiness that, that, that these folks have created. You know, the folks that created Jurassic Park that all these people are trying to see their way out of. Yeah. So John Williams is really ratcheting it up here. You know, he's bringing in the brass. Um, they're letting the music kind of drive the second half a little bit more. There's still big moments of silence, but like the music that's there is, is not... Uh, not subtle in these transitions with the brass. In order to get the charge, it's large, flat, and gray. 
Alright, here I go, okay? Notice John Williams, too, and this is something that composers do a lot, where they, they play around the dialogue, you know? As soon as she says, charged, you hear, da-da-da, um, and they swell in between lines, and they leave room for lines to actually be said. Max Steiner, I believe, used to call um, music scoring for film uh, a concerto for dialogue. Uh, by the way, a concerto is, is a piece of... Uh, orchestral music that features a solo instrument like a violin or a piano or a clarinet or a flute or whatever. Um, well, if the dialogue is the solo instrument, then, you know, usually there's a call and response in a concerto where, you know, you the, the piano will do this wonderful line and then the orchestra will respond. That's exactly what film composers do with dialogue. They respond to dialogue. So if you're watching this scene, listen to how John Williams will actually play music in between the dialogue cracks, if you will. Transitions are, are great for, for music swells. In between lines, sometimes he'll do a little music run, just like those French horns just now. And then he hangs out. You know, the trumpet clears before the body fall, that sort of thing. You know, he got da-da-da-da in before the there's no breathing line. Playing in between the dialogue. There's another great example. It's a great scare. Huge scare in the theater. Now, I'm pretty sure this shot of Laura Dern when she, she's leaving, of course she's hurt. Oh, this is great. And again, that moment of musical silence before she realizes what's happening. You know, bump, bump, bump. Oh, Mr. Arnold. Sorry, but as I was saying, the shot of her limping here, all of this, I believe that's ADR'd by the actor. All of that, you know, breathing and, you know, yelling there. I think that's all done in the studio, especially the shot of her. as She comes to this back fence down here and she's down here crying. I think she had to recreate... I think she had to recreate that in the studio. Um... And now we just get the sounds of the jungle and what we have coming up here with Muldoon's demise is totally based on the Predator's theme, that four-note motif. There it is. Quietly. And we hear it again and again and again. Mostly in the low woodwinds. As he brings back his shotgun. Hear it very, very faintly in the high woodwinds now. Ba, 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 ba. And uh oh. There it is in the low brass. Game over. Great shot of the eye of the raptor with the snake coming by.
And again, now we're back to no music. This is just sort of a very desolate look at uh, at the park here. Another down moment. But there's no music reassuring us this time that everything's okay. There's no uh, tree for my bed sort of lullaby happening here. We don't truly know that this is a down moment because it's a little too quiet for that. I'll be back soon. This is great. This is a great performance again here uh, by the actor that plays Tim. As he comes down and he's just totally been fried, his hair sticking up, and he does this wonderful limp over and discovers the food here over on the uh, on the right, the huge buffet. Imagine they haven't had anything to eat since they left the compound a day before. And then Grant is back, and now they're reunited for the first time in a day. Imagine coming back to the compound and that's what you find. And this is great here. They're eating and they're super happy. And again, this is a, another great shot by Spielberg by basically conveying the fear of the child with a spoonful of jello. You know, how, how do you get the tremors and the shakes? You know, it's with this green jello here. <laughs> that is Steven Spielberg just being a total genius. You know, and again, the, the, the shot of the raptor silhouette against the actual painting of the raptor. No music. No music. Very real. Very real. They enter the kitchen and they go find a place to hide. And nothing. Great snort at the door. <laughs> Amazing sounds by Gary Rydstrom. Just the two raptors, right? You sure that they're most contained? Yes. Unless they figured out how to open doors. Foreshadowing. And then just cut straight to a handle. And then now the music creeps in. Because there's no hiding from these these creatures. They're too intelligent. And that low choir is back. That low men's choir from the beginning of the movie. Jimmy, what is it? Tremolo on the strings with low brass stabs building tension. interesting that's actually a man in a suit right there and then and then this next shot is CG right here using every trick in the book in order to get these things to be totally convincing Stan Winston then puppetry then CG and there of course we have our ba ba bum bum game of cat and mouse though so the music is doing a great job of of just building suspense and what a wonderful sound uh, if you watch the blu-ray uh, that ticking of the of the toenail there if you watch the blu-ray you can hear Steven Spielberg um, in pre-production talking about how he would love to have just the sound of 
of the toenails ticking. He's talking to Phil Tippett there. Um, so that's something that they envisioned very, very early on in this process. Jurassic Park um, was made in a specific method where they storyboarded absolutely everything. Uh, they knew what they were going to shoot before they shot it. There wasn't that spontaneity that uh, they had the confidence um, in the technology in order to have on the set that they later had on The Lost World or some other Spielberg movies where he's like, I just want to do whatever I want to do with the camera and I just want you know, ILM to be able to make the dinosaurs happen. With this movie, they storyboarded absolutely everything so that they were leaving very little to chance. Um, they knew what they were going to go out and get and it was totally vetted uh, before they went and did it. You know, they had experts on the set. They had uh, visual effects experts putting their minds to these these issues here, how they were going to do what they were going to do. Um, and sure enough, they decided this shot's going to be animatronic. This shot's going to be a man in a puppet suit or in a suit. This shot's just going to be legs. This shot's going to be CG. Um, it's a great shot there. Really clever idea. Um, with everything in this uh, in this room being reflective, they had to light it very, very carefully. They had to shoot it very, very carefully in order to avoid reflections. Um, you know, I don't think this soundtrack would be possible without Blu-rays and DVD special editions and behind-the-scenes footage and commentaries because, you know, I would say since the late 90s, over the last 20 years, it's been like having a, a film school at your fingertips, you know, that's just available for all of us to look at and enjoy um, but all of these wonderful stories are available, you know, just, I want to give a plug to, to Universal and, and, uh, and their Blu-ray collections or their digital copies, you know, on iTunes or elsewhere for you to go and pick up a copy because they add all this value added material is what they call it. They add all this material, uh, to the movie for, you know, to incentivize us to still purchase movies so that people who make these things can continue making them and, uh, can be paid for their work. Um, so it's very important that when we love these movies that we support them and sorry to go on a total soapbox here, but, um, you know, I, I see a lot of people collecting action figures. I, I've, I've had some action figures and tchotchkes for movies, but as a fan of movies and as a fan of soundtracks, I feel it is absolutely vital when you love something to support it. You know, if you love a sports team, you buy a ticket and you wear their Jersey, you know, if you love a movie, buy a copy. Um, you know, if you really love something, buy a copy and buy a copy of the soundtrack, because that's how we get better soundtrack releases, better film releases, more material for us to look at, like behind the scenes stuff and, uh, inspires, you know, huge nerds like me to do commentary tracks and have some podcasts like this. So just a little, um, just a little plug there for you all to, to think about and consider if you can, you know, money is tight for everyone, and I understand that. But if you can and you really love something, rather than buying a T-shirt, buy, buy a copy of the movie, you know, um, even if it's digital. So this is, uh, this is a scene here with uh, Lex figuring out how to basically get the doors shut and having to navigate this crazy node-based UI here. Um, but this actually gives her a character arc that is not in the book. And then John Williams is scoring this entire thing. You know, this fast cutting. You know, it's a little less based in sort of situational reality because you're cross cutting back and forth between a computer screen and a door and a dinosaur and the kids' faces. And, you know, I think musically, you couldn't do that sequence 
Or I should say, you couldn't do that sequence without music. And you actually get the uh, island theme there. Gran, the phones are working. The phones are working. The children are alive. The children are fine. Call the mainland. Tell them to send the damn helicopters. Gonna go through the glass! Yeah, John Williams really gets to shine towards the end of this movie here. And they climb up into the grating here. Now this is great. This is the f world's first face, digital face replacement shot right here. When Lex is about to fall through the roof and she's, she's hanging on. Oh, it's a beautiful shot with all the lines of code projecting onto, uh, onto the raptor there. But as she's falling, it's actually a stunt double, and they put uh, Lex's face on the stunt double here, uh, just for one shot coming up. And of course, the high trumpet's giving you the uh, Predator's theme. That shot right there, that is a, a face replacement using computers uh, for that stunt double there. You know, if you actually see that, that's that's a, that's an, a female adult, you know, doubling for, for Lex there. Yeah, we're being treated to a lot of the Predators theme here. Now, John Williams' plan, as I understand it, was to have this whole thing lead to a huge statement of the Predators theme when the T-Rex comes in at the very end and saves the day. Now, I had mentioned before, too, that uh, this whole movie was storyboarded, and that's true. However, at the last minute, Spielberg said, you know, we, we, we need to get away from what we storyboarded with the Raptors here and have the T-Rex come back in and save the day at the end. And they had to figure that out on the set and choreograph it after they'd already started shooting for the T-Rex to make a one last appearance and be the thing that actually saves our cast here. So yes, the movie was all storyboarded in advance with the exception of uh, this scene coming up where the T-Rex saves them. Listen to the sound and music being balanced in this sequence. And then repeating the Buster Keaton gag there with Tim, you know, inside the ribcage of the dinosaurs. But anyway, what I was saying is that John Williams was going to lead to a giant statement of bum, 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 bum. But instead, uh, Spielberg elected to cut in the island theme. And I think it's just a needle drop of the actual island theme from earlier in the movie. They just edited it in uh, when the T-Rex comes in and saves them here. Because we're getting bum, 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 bum. And then as soon as the T-Rex comes in, we get... The island theme right here. And apparently, uh, well, actually, I don't know if I remember this, but I'm sure we did, but I'm sure we cheered at this moment. But uh, to quote the liner notes of, uh, again, that La La, Land's, La La Land Records release, the audience cheered at this moment. Uh, musically, it was the right decision. And of course, now it's gone and we're back into... I believe was probably the original cue here. We get a little hint of, of what will be the Lost World theme there. And then the banner falling when dinosaurs roll the earth. That huge sound. Now this is an interesting trick. Now you're you're below a helicopter, 
But the helicopter blades aren't very loud. They're very, very, very low in the mix, creating kind of a surreal moment here to just let music be quiet rather than having these helicopter blades super loud and realistic in the mix. Can't hear any of the foley. It's gone. And you barely hear, barely hear Grant say, come on to Hammond. You're letting the music do all the work and you can hear dinosaur roars in the background. And now we get the piano just simply giving us the animal's theme. They're safe. There's a sense of defeat in Hammond and she's staring at that uh, that cane with the mosquito caught in amber. And now this beautiful moment as uh, Dr. Sattler stares at Dr. Grant and sees him with the kids. It's really cool. Maybe something came out of this besides just disaster. Maybe life finds a way. And he looks out, and you see this shot of birds, uh, a flock of birds, almost a family of birds. And you look at these birds and you realize, you know, he was kind of right all along, you know? Because there's there's a theory at the top of the movie that, uh, that he says that dinosaurs came from birds and they laugh at him, but he's looking at these birds and he's realizing he's right, you know? And in a way, almost realizing he missed the point of studying these animals all along, you know? It really is about life finding a way. He's realizing through this whole experience how precious life is. And the music is, is doing all of that. I mean, without saying a word, you know, that, that's what Spielberg and uh, David Captain Crichton are doing here. And you're just treated to this gorgeous, gorgeous music Again, that feels like it's from a totally different movie than, you know, the scene we just saw with the raptors in the kitchen. But it isn't. It all works. It all works together so beautifully. And it's been such a huge inspiration for a lot of us um, that just love this movie. I'm going to stop talking so we can just hear this music. Jurassic Park from 1993. What an incredible movie. An incredible score. Run, don't walk to go out and buy the score if you haven't already. It really is just something special. 
<laughs> I know, I've said that a couple of times. Be rest assured, I do not get any kickbacks or anything for saying that. I'm just a fan and I know, you know, the economics of it. Um, that, you know, you get more releases and you get better quality when people support it. You know, and they go out and support the things that they love. And, uh, and yeah, there's a lot of just great information in there. Uh, special thanks to La La, La La Land Records for this uh, John Williams Jurassic Park collection, which I referenced heavily in all of these episodes, as well as all the Blu-rays, um, uh, the DVDs, the legacy features, um, you know, documentaries here and there. Um, all of that stuff I leaned on very, very heavily. Uh, obviously, uh, the Internet's a huge part of my research. Um, but in this case, album releases was a huge part of my research because there aren't really uh, any great books that I know of uh, on the subject other than, you know, kind of making of Jurassic Park books, which are kind of kind of like um, kind of like what you see in the Blu-ray or the DVD. So um, there's some really great stuff out there. And thanks to those of you that pointed out, yes, it's Bob Peck is the name of the actor who <clears throat> played Muldoon who was part of the Royal Shakespeare Company and uh, worked with Sir Ian McKellen. And uh, someone on Twitter pointed out, yes, actually, Ian McKellen said, I've learned more from Bob Peck than any other actor. Something like that. I'm paraphrasing terribly here, but uh, incredible actor and, and um, really are uh, one of many in this cast that really help uh, sell and give credibility to this, to this you know, amazing tale. Um, and of course, I have to plug the book as well, since we're here at the end. If you haven't had a chance to check out the book, um, I've read the book. I have a hard copy, but then I also did the audiobook on audible.com. A um, uh, little plug to them because uh, I love uh, I love audiobooks, especially while I'm commuting, as much as all of you love podcasts. Um, so that's that's really a great, a great thing here uh, to, to check out if you're a fan of Jurassic Park and will really give you... I think after loving the movie, um, an, an even greater, deeper appreciation of the movie and the work that went into adapting it, uh, if you're a big fan of Jurassic Park. Um, and again, I wanted to give another shout out to my friend Aaron Bennett, who did the voiceover in my Jurassic Park episodes. Uh, she's a very, very talented voice actor and singer. And actually, we used to do theater together all the way back in high school. So it's really fun, you know, that we're both in Los Angeles. And I called her and said, hey, can you give me some uh, voiceover for these uh, Jurassic Park episodes? So special thanks to her. And special thanks to all of you for listening. Um, I know we've we've done a lot of John Williams on this show. I didn't expect to do so much at the top. Uh, but, uh, you know, this was something that uh, we put out a user poll for. What do, what do you want to hear next? And a lot of people said Jurassic Park, overwhelmingly so. So I ended up doing yet another John Williams score. We'll do more John Williams later, and certainly it makes sense because he has so many amazing, amazing uh, uh, franchises that he's done. It's very much like trying to do a a, uh, a show about 18th century orchestral music and getting away from Mozart. You know, uh, maybe that's an unfair comparison because there are so many brilliant film score. Uh, composers out there, but the, just the movies that Williams has done are just so incredibly famous, and he seemed to start so many franchises that so many other composers took over. Uh, but we're going to move on to some other composers after this, talk about some uh, other great scores and some great talent in the uh, film scoring business. want to get back to talking about video games, want to talk about live theater, want to talk about song scores, want to talk about television. And here is, of course, that solo French horn giving us the Predator's theme as we wrap up Jurassic Park. 
this wonderful ominous chord at the very end. This is The Soundtrack Show. Please follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Soundtrack Show HSW or on Twitter at Soundtrack HSW. I'm also on Twitter at David W. Collins and uh, hopefully I'll hear from you then. But uh, until next time, thank you so much again and uh, I'll be back soon. 